Hi, can you slate your name, please? Hi, I'm John Ross Bowie. I'm five foot eight, and I'm based in Los Angeles. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Slate Your Name, the show where an actor, that's me, talks to other actors and creators about the highs and the lows of working in Hollywood. I'm your host, Michael McMillan. You might know me from True Blood, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Hot in Cleveland, What I Like About You, now streaming on HBO Max. This week, I'm sitting down with actor, comedic performer, and now author, John Ross Bowie, who has a brand new memoir out called No Job for a Man, which is all about John uh, growing up in New York City, uh, getting into the music scene, and trying out a bunch of different jobs, getting a sense of what it is to be a man, and uh, working eventually in film and TV. You'll know John from a million things. He played Kripke on uh, The Big Bang Theory, that very small show. Um, Also, he was in Speechless. Uh, He's been in a a million, a million projects. Uh, So you'll be no stranger if you're listening to this, to to John's work. Uh, He's also was my improv teacher uh, back in the day, which uh, we talk a little bit about. Um, John is a great guy, very talented guy, very funny, very smart, very thoughtful. I'm very much enjoying his new book. So let's get right into it. This is my conversation with John. John Ross Bowie. John Ross Bowie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here, man. I'm glad to be here. That was the uh, that is the slate I give. That is, <laughs> is usually with the okay. winning smile at the end. I know yeah. we're not in a visual medium, but I I uh, I I, I want to give the impression of I'm a delight to have on set. Yeah. Do you do the, uh, sometimes they ask for your vaccination status and I've had friends be like fully vaxxed baby. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> no, I don't. I, 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 I just, I usually take that opportunity to talk about how, uh, uh, the Chinese communist party and the Democrats collaborated to bring down yes. Trump in 2020. Yeah. Cause I figure this is my time. You know, that's the thing that the you... young actors need to understand is that this audition is your time. Yeah, you got to use whatever platform you have, John, to get the truth out there. Stop the steal. Yeah. (laughs) Still fighting. Hey, man, never give up. Um, I so for uh, I tend to tell my listeners how our guests and I are connected. Um, We're not always connected, but you were my my improv teacher for uh, UCB 101, Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. That's right. Uh, yeah. The first and only improv class that I ever took. Not, be- not oh, because no. of you. You were great. Oh, no. I broke you. <laughs> no, you didn't break me. I got cast on True Blood right after that class ended. And then I and then like I, I went the year without going back. And then I was like, oh, I'll have to start over. Right. And then right. I just, I gave up. But I remember... When I was signing up, people were like, who's your teacher? And I was like, John Ross Bowie. And they were like, oh, he's the best. He's the best. You got a good one. You got a good oh, one. Oh, that's nice to hear. I, I really did. Um, I really did love teaching. And I, and I, I still do it when um, opportunity arises. I quit right before I had um, we had our second kid. 
because mm-hmm. it was just getting way too hectic. And I was, and, and, you know, there were some nice business things happening and that was lovely, but it was requiring me to like miss classes. And I hated missing classes. I hated getting a last minute sub. I hated like losing that continuity with a class, but I, I took it real seriously. And I really, I really, and I remember you from the class. I remember enjoying your work in the class too. Um, and I, I, you know, there's there's the there's the sort of middle ground people who I forget, but then there's the really good ones, and then the fucking disastrous assholes are the ones <laughs> are the ones I remember. And you were firmly, firmly in the former camp. And uh, yeah, it was a good time. Oh, uh, thanks. I always remember. You know, my problem anytime there's an authority figure, I am. Oh, God, I just want to please them so badly like that. I still have this problem. I'm like terrified of authority figures. I just want them to like me. And I remember feeling really embarrassed one night because I I had I I actually had my very first day. I booked True Blood and had a one day guest star and it shot over a class. And I was like, I got to tell John that I'm going to miss the class. And he's going to be upset. <laughs> this is not based on anything that you did. Okay. But I was just like, so I was like, well, I can't tell him it's for work. If I just say it's for work, it sounds like I'm blown. So I'm going to tell him it's for a shoot. <laughs> so I came up and I was like, hey, John, I got to miss class, um, but it's for a shoot. And you just looked at me and you were like, a shoot. <laughs> and I felt so pretentious in that moment. And I was like, yeah, yeah. So uh, I got a, I got a gig. Oh, bye. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean no. to put you in your headline about that. I mean, I, what I usually would say, if people said they, they were missing it for work, I assumed they meant, you know, show business work. Yeah. And I would usually be like, well, yeah, that's, that's why we're here. You know, that's so, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, um, go, go with God. I, okay. I, um, it's funny that I bristled at, uh, at shoot. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry I put you through any sort of, I hope that hasn't been weighing on YouTube. I hate that you brought it up some 13, 14 yep. years after it yep. happened. Uh, 13 <laughs> years later, I was like, oh, I sounded like a real asshole in that moment. That was my takeaway. Do you have that thing where, because this is, and it actually comes up in the book maybe to a certain extent too, but there's a thing where you want to please an authority figure. And when that doesn't work, you're very I, you very quietly declare war on that authority figure because that's my big problem is like oh if i can't please you i shall make you my enemy you are you this is a constant eternal struggle now and i'm it's taken me years to get past that wow. but um yeah i i i completely under i mean you know it, it, it's so easy to track the the psychology that would put someone in an acting class with a desperate need to pre- to please and seek yep. the approval of a stranger. It's I mean, this kind is of not, a one to one there. It really is. Yeah, there's not there's not a lot of we don't need a big whiteboard to track this thing nope. out. Nope, because half of us, if not all of us, are just coming in to be like, "Tell me you like me, please. I need some <laughs> emotional confirmation, some validation here that I'm I'm doing okay." Do not withhold. Please do not withhold. (laughs) So let's talk about the book. Uh, No job for a man. Uh, I'm reading it right now. It's great. And there's something early on in the book. Actually, when you talk about discovering the title, um, which we can talk about if you want to. Sure, sure. um, Well, first of all, I guess let's tell tell everybody where the, the title comes from. 
Um, no job for a man is a quote that my father used about the acting professions profession, and he would attribute it to Spencer Tracy, um, which was an interesting way I thought to, for him to prove that he was contemptuous of the field, but also a historian of the field. Uh, and both were true. My, my dad got me into old movies and theater and, and good TV. And then when I decided that it was something I actually wanted to do for a living, there was this real sort of son of an immigrant quality of, well, no, it's not something we do. We don't participate in this. We just watch this. This is not, you know, we don't we don't do the funny make ups. We laugh at the funny make. We laugh <laughs> at the clowns. We are not the clowns. And um, so, yeah, I think from a, it came from a place of my father's sort of dissatisfaction with his career path and with um, it came with a certain amount of envy, which he even um, admitted to at one point. Uh, later in my career, it came to, uh, or rather it came from a place of genuinely concerned about the sort of stability I would have in this career. So it came from some legitimate places and some kind of weird, resentful places. Um, but, um, once I had that title, I was able to give the book a little more shape because it, it, it at that point it ceased to be just sort of a, oh, this will be kind of a fun dishy actor memoir. I was like, no, this is a sort of a, a collection of thoughts on my relationship to work, to jobs and my relationship to what it means to be a man and like how I, what I picked up from my dad, what I figured out on my own. And, um, I, I had someone very, very sweetly say that they wanted the book to be longer, but I felt like I had covered the theme, no job for a man, jobs and manhood pretty well, which is why it clocks out at like, I don't know, 248, 250 or so. Mm -hmm. um, also, I mean, you know, who am I, Winston Churchill? I mean, we don't need <laughs> three volumes into this guy. Listen, you're, you're still a young man. There's room for sequels. <laughs> there's room for sequels. Yeah, there's a moment in that chapter that resonated with me, and it was a thought that I hadn't had. Uh, growing up as a kid in the suburbs of Kansas, and you and I had very different backgrounds. Uh, someone who grew up thinking that there were children in, growing up in New York to me was like, oh, there's kids growing up on Tatooine or Cloud City. <laughs> like it, it was like it was like I can't even imagine this. But I, I always had like a, a fascination with New York. Um, I think because of the theater thing, also heavily due to Marvel Comics, that was Spider Man's home. Um, but you talk about how growing up in New York City, you were exposed to, among other things, seeing the struggle that actors have trying to go from job to job. Whereas a kid like me growing up in the suburbs, the only time we saw actors were on TV, in the movies, or at the Academy Awards. That and was they it. Were killing it. And they yeah, were they and were they achievement unlocked. They had done it. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it was easily it was easy for me to get the delusion of like, oh, I could just run away with the circus. I can just go be <laughs> one of these guys because they're they're doing it. But that wasn't the case growing up in New York. No, there was a real say and I grew up right in the theater district. I grew up right right there and we knew a lot of people. Do you um did um, for, forgive me, Michael, did you ever live in New York? Or did you just I Kansas didn't. City I right skipped there? it. Okay. I came straight out here. I, I would go to New York often, but I never lived sure. there. 
Um, near near me, where I was growing up, are these uh, two buildings called Manhattan Plaza that opened in the mid seventies, and it's um, artist subsidized housing. It is, yes. um, you know, if you present a a paid up equity card or a paid up SAG card, you could have subsidized housing in there. It opened in the seventies, and getting into that place is. It's like getting into the good place. I mean, like, there's like there's a waiting list, and <laughs> people are like, "Oh, I have a townhouse in Brooklyn, but my girlfriend has a one bedroom in Manhattan Plaza, so we're gonna take we're gonna move into that place because that's the one that's harder to come by." So, <clears throat> I saw up close not just the finished product of people at award shows and people on stage. I saw the people who were having fruitless auditions, and these were my friends' uh, parents. And I, I, I saw them just completely struggle to get a foothold in this incredibly erratic business. So that coupled with a general sort of mistrust of the whole scene from my father, I, it kind of scared me off of wanting to pursue it at all. And I, I harbored this deep wish, like, I want to get up there. I want to try and do this. I think I might have something to offer. Um, but it it took me doing a bunch of other jobs and not being particularly good at them to kind of hunker down and say, well, I have to at least give this a shot or I'm really going to, I'm just going to be one of those people who questions his choices for the rest of his life. And, you know, it worked out and I've got a foothold and I, I have qualified for insurance for over two decades now, which I think is, I don't yeah. know, your barometer of success, but that's Congratulations. my big, that's my big barometer of success. If you qualify for SAG insurance, um, uh, you were having a good year. Yeah. That's, that's all it takes for me. Um, so yeah, it was, it is something that I noticed with my friends who grew up outside of major urban centers. And there's really just three where you would see that regularly. It's just New York, Chicago, and LA where you would see people actually struggling as actors. Um, uh, yeah, the, the big difference from with the New Yorkers, I know is that we actually knew what was, you know, the, the downside of it. We, we, I hate to say we saw the struggle up close, but we saw that there were a lot of pitfalls. Yeah. The thing that we did have in common was growing up with a father who hated his job. And I know for me watching a man come home from work and go straight to the liquor cabinet to make himself a screwdriver and then complain about work to my mom was like, okay, I don't want that to happen to me. I, I do not want to fall into this trap. However, there are times, uh, and I feel like I'm going through one of those moments right now where I'm like, well, this shit is the most stressful thing in the world. Why did I sign up for this? You, you mentioned it in the book, the idea of like, well, but my dad did have a steady job. You know, yeah. he at least had a steady paycheck. Do you, do you still find yourself struggling now, even gone through the book, do you find yourself, how do you, how do you deal with the being now one of those parents that is like successful, but still has that, Hey, you're, you're a freelance artist and still, it's still solidly in the gig economy. Yeah. Um, I, um, writing the book was interesting because it could put my dad's life in perspective and then I put my twenties in perspective and I, I had to get to the place of just reminding myself of what it was like in in the various corporate jobs I had. And I'm not taking anything away from people who who work standard nine to fives because there's people who are very good at it and enjoy it. Yes. Or, or either don't either 
they either enjoy it or they're able to then do something after work, whether it's softball or whether it's golf or whether it's poker or whether they have a, a dad band there. They have an outlet outside of work that makes work, you know, just something they do in the daytime and they're able to separate their lives really nicely. And I, I really struggled with that and it was not for want of trying. So as, as, quiet and frustrating as this business can be sometimes, I I, I still think, <laughs> to put it in corporate terms, it's where I add the most value. <laughs> I'm a value add, I think, in in uh, mm-hmm. on a set more so than I am at a consulting firm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and I'm able to just be like, you know, say the word, man. You 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 type pretty well, John. You want to dust off your resume and go back into the trenches? Then fucking do it. And you know that lasts for about a minute and a half, and then I'm like, yeah, no, I'm probably gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep putting myself on tape. For you just gave me a flash of an idea where we do a reality show, but we just put actors in corporate jobs and watch them fail. <laughs> you know, I I I would do better than most just because I could bullshit my way, you know, having done it for a little while. You know, it's the people who have been working since they were 15 who would really struggle. <laughs> yeah. Um, why is lunch now? Are we at meal penalty? What's happening? Where's Crafty? What's going on? <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating to me that that conversation seems to never end. But there is comfort, com- you know, the, with yourself, you know, at least for me. But there, there is comfort in finding perspective in uh, our middle age. I think, and looking back, like, what did you learn about your twenties? What put what was put into context about your twenties? Well, just the fact that I really did on a couple of fronts, try to make quote unquote straight jobs work, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I just, I, I had a really hard time. There were some, um, there were some jobs I had where I just thought what the company was doing was, was quite literally gross. Like I worked in an engineering firm that, that had this massive picture of, Oh, look at this massive highway we put through the Hawaiian rainforest. And I'm like, I don't know whether that should be there. Um, that's not (laughs) great. And, you know, management consulting is a whole other host of sins because it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of, uh, corporate downsizing in the late nineties and they would go and they would find redundancies. And I'm not saying that companies shouldn't be more efficient, but like a lot of people lost their jobs in the process of these redundancy things. Um, and I would get, that would really dishearten me. But even the jobs where I believed in what they were doing, like I worked for, um, I worked for Scholastic. I worked for like the, the people who sell, you know, reasonably priced books to kids and encourage reading and the book make, fair people, the, the book happiest, fair people. the happiest days of my grade school were when the scholastic book fair came to town. Magic school bus. <clears throat> Miss Frizzle came to the office for photos one time. I was like, this should be I should be really enjoying myself here. And I but I, I'm so confused as to what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I've taught myself Excel, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing on it. What's happening? And I just got so easily confused. I, I was recently, um, recently fucking finally diagnosed with actual ADHD. Not the, sort oh, wow. of like, not the sort of vague, like, oh, John's flaky. Like, no, actual full on, these are the things. And medication is going to help a little bit, kind of ADHD. And it made me look back and realize like, yeah, no, you're probably not a guy who's going to do great in front of a ledger. 
Right. <laughs> That's probably not going to be your strong suit, John. Um, so, yeah, I what I what I felt good about looking back over my 20s in the process of writing the book was just looking at these. Some of these were very game efforts to assimilate and do a better version of what my dad did in terms of working a corporate job and being happy with it. And I just couldn't quite stick the landing. And then I just felt like I really, and it honestly wasn't, I felt like I had something to offer once I got into improv and acting. And it wasn't just the get up on stage, look at me, look at me kind of thing, although that doesn't hurt, certainly. But I really felt there was something in the way you would connect with a scene partner, whether you were doing something scripted or something improvised and how you were both just sort of agreeing to this fantasy that I found really exciting and interesting and I, I I will happily just get together with a couple of friends and just read a play out loud just for that sense of connection. There doesn't have to be an audience. I just really enjoy working with people and talking about characters and using my my English degree to find a figure out uh, subtext and the like. Mm-hmm. It really does. I find that really satisfying. I think I'm I'm better at it than I have been at anything else I've ever tried to do. And looking back at the kind of seismic shift that was my twenties made me realize that. Yeah. That's no different than playing in a band or being in a choir and enjoying harmonizing, playing off each other, writing Uh songs. You know what I mean? I I Uh think it's very similar. It's just that I tend to gravitate. I like all those other things, but I tend to gravitate towards, I want to break down this story and figure out, what everyone's motivation is. How could you make this more interesting? You know, that's the stuff that really fascinates me. And it is a communal thing, you know? Yeah. 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 It's not it, it as isolating as it can be. The career can be the work itself can be very communal and very um, there can be a real sense of connection with people um, and intimacy. I hesitate to say that is really nice and that I really value. That's the tough thing with where I feel like things are right now in um, auditioning is doing Mm. all these self-tapes. And I'm finding that I'm in a moment where I miss more than anything. And I'm sort of surprised. I shouldn't be surprised, but I miss the social aspect of the business right now. Where right now we're just putting ourselves on tape, sending them off. I was like, I never thought I would long for the days when I drove to Santa Monica and ran into John in an audition room and we got to chat. We got to chat. How many times did you go out? Did you end up having coffee with a friend that you hadn't seen in a long time? Or just getting that interaction in the room or being able to take a note. Getting that immediate feedback and being like, I will take your note. I will adjust for that note and I will surprise you despite (laughs) having just been having this sprung on me. I will surprise you with a joke that you wrote. Um, You know, that is that that is something that I dearly miss. You're getting more and more. I'm getting the option to do at least a Zoom audition. So there's you're looking at somebody who is going to give you some immediate feedback and you'll have another take on it. Um, And I will always opt for that. I will absolutely always opt for that. But, yeah, I miss the you've turned 40, right? Yes, I've turned 44. Okay, mazels. Um, There is something. And on my old podcast, I was talking to Stephen Root about this one time. I had I have to drop that name because I, I want to give him credit for for 
pointing this out to me. And he said, and this is a guy who didn't really start to break until he was solidly middle-aged, but he said that around the age of 40, a lot of your presumed competitors would start to drop off. Mm -hmm. They would just start to say like, you know what? Fuck this. Uh, I'm going to do something else for a living. Um, This is too hard. I I don't love this enough to put myself through the rigmarole of auditioning and rejection. So I'm going to go do something else and I'm going to, I'm going to choose a certain stability and God bless them. And what's left are the hardcore guys who understand that we're all kind of just sort of taking turns for roles. Like, you know, this might be my time guys. Uh, This could be Mark Evan Jackson's time. This could be Craig Kukowski's time. (laughs) This could be PJ Burns time. You know, I've got my regulars. We all have guys who are around our age and around our type. Um, And we, um, you, you get to a point where you don't resent anybody anymore. God, God willing, you know, if you do enough work on yourself, you get to a point where you're just like, Hey, you know, it might be your turn at the buffet. Uh, I'm going to give it my best shot, but then I'm going to go try and beat traffic. God bless. <laughs> <laughs> and I I do miss that sense. And like just as that was starting to happen, the pandemic happened and shut everything down. And I, I absolutely do miss that heightened sense of camaraderie or even that great sense of like, oh, I don't know this guy, but I know his work. And here we are in the same room. That's exciting. Certainly happened to me. I mean, I'm a big fan of Mike Mitchell's, and I remember meeting Mike Mitchell in an audition. I was like, uh-huh. hey, dude, I'm I'm sorry to bother you. I just love your work. I love your podcast. I love love. You know, like, just love being able guy. to meet people like that, and yeah. I feel like it's got to feel good for them, too, to be like, hey, there's a guy that I'm going up against who's like, you're awesome, you know? Oh, yeah, no, totally. I did one of the, one of the, one of the best things, one of the kindest things I've ever done in this business. Um, I, uh, I'm in an audition. I do not remember what the what the project was, which is unlike me, but they're all everyone's there for the same role. So everyone here, we're all going out for the same part. And down the hall, going over his lines, I see Getty Watanabe. Oh um, wow. Great Japanese American actor who's a bit older than me, but this is one of those like sort of broad administrative clerk guys that I go out for on occasion. So they're they're casting like a 25-year net. Mm-hmm. I go over to Getty Watanabe and I'm like, Mr. Watanabe, I don't want to bother you. And he looks up and you could kind of see what was going on in his eyes because he was like, okay, here's a Gen X white kid who's going to make me do Lawn Duck Dong. And oh, I'm really no. trying to get my game face on. And I don't need to be reminded of this caricature that I did in the 80s. And I fucking curveballed him. And I was like, listen, my wife and I saw you in East West Players production of Pippin. We thought you were fantastic. Thank wow. you for the evening. Um, I don't know who got that part. I know I didn't. I hope it was Getty. Yeah. <laughs> but it was one of those things where like this guy's so awesome that I might just I might just give him his flowers and boost him up a little bit today. <laughs> yeah. Just as Christ would have and just kind of you know, <laughs> put some good energy out into the world and then go about my day. Um, and it just felt really good to be able to do that to, to somebody in the yeah. community of the waiting room. Yeah, absolutely. I miss that. What do you do as someone who uh, taught improv, is an experienced actor, improv uh, actor, comedian, in a situation where you're like, okay, I'm acting in a vacuum, such as the case often with these self tapes. You know, where do you, where do you, how do you cope with that? Like, what, what, what? I guess uh, strategies have you figured out for yourself to inspire a good audition? 
it's all stuff that you already know, but you need to sometimes remind yourself a little more sternly before you go into a, uh, a, a self tape. Um, you know, it, it all comes down to that, that Jimmy Cagney line about, you know, hit your mark, look the other fellow in the eye and tell the truth, you know? And mm-hmm. I'm fortunate that a lot of times when I go on tape, I go on tape here in my house and my wife, Jamie Denbo is an esteemed actor herself. So mm-hmm. I've got this phenomenal scene partner slash director yeah. with me and she's my eyeline and my North star. And that helps. But even when I go out for self tapes, a lot of the people who work at those self tape places, which have are having a banner a couple of fucking years right now um a lot of those guys are really good yeah a lot of those guys are really fucking good they're amazing cold readers you can't do that job without being just a top-notch cold reader who come in with like these bold ass choices um and and they can you know make it through medical jargon and all the kind of crazy (laughs) shit that comes your way when you're cold reading um so I've been using a couple places around L.A. that have been incredibly reliable in that regard. But, yeah, you know, you 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 you're in the antiseptic setting of your bedroom or a weird self tape studio on La Brea. But, you know, you figure out where your character's center of gravity is, uh, even though you're not going to be walking. That's how you're going to stand. You know, some characters, some people lead with their face, their chest, their crotch. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you just try to have a verb behind every line, you know, try to have, Mm -hmm. try to have, have a real intention behind everything. And it is harder in these sort of far away places. And you're not, especially if you're doing like multicam sitcom where it's beat, joke, beat, joke, beat, joke. And you're not making anyone, you know, you, you're not making a casting director or a producer laugh. Um, it's a little, and I go out for a ton of multicam. The medium is still alive and I am still going out for it, but it's, um, it's an interesting, uh, sort of exercise to just sort of, okay, well, I'm still going to have to take those beats and I'm still going to have to understand that this particular medium has a certain rhythm and, uh, yeah, look the other fella in the eye and tell the (laughs) truth, man. I know that's such a corny cliche thing, but I'm a massive Cagney fan. I, I, I'm a big Jimmy Cagney was a, a triple threat. He was five foot six. He helped found SAG. He was just, there's just so much to like about that guy. And he comes up with, you know, the best words about the profession since Hamlet's speech to the players. (laughs) And I just, I love it so much. I am shamefully like, know very little about Cagney like I've seen a couple movies growing up as a kid but I've that's he's an actor that I haven't gone back to in as an adult and really looked at their work and see really you know found a respect for 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 what he's done but he's a, he's a name that comes up all the time yeah yeah I I really it's something I can I can thank my dad for my dad got me into into Cagney um uh, there's one particular film of his of which I'm very fond. Everyone always talks about like White Heat, which is really good. Don't get me wrong. White Heat is really good. Um, but there's one called Angels with Dirty Faces, mm-hmm. which is um, Cagney, Pat O'Brien. And it's such a great movie that they can burn off Humphrey Bogart in a supporting role. Wow. And um, it's a it's sort of a gangster tragedy. And uh, the ending makes me cry. It's so well done. It's so fucking well done. You're in for a treat. Great. I'll check it out. Speaking of great performances, one of the things that was incredible uh, reading in your book is since you were so close to the New York theater scene, you saw some pretty classic 
Broadway shows growing up. Can you name some of those shows that you saw maybe the original productions of? I saw the original production, but not the original cast of Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. I saw Second String with George Hearn, who has gone on to play the role more than anybody else, I believe, and Dorothy Loughton, who I had just seen the year before as Miss Hannigan in Annie. But I saw the original, like, big, full orchestra Hal mm-hmm. Prince production of Sweeney Todd, which wow. I was just enamored with just absolutely it's still one of my it's still the show that i've seen the most productions of do you think that was because you even talk about in the book you had your first like meta narrative moment (laughs) where they're commenting on the play itself and you're like wait you can do this yeah no there's a moment in the in the ballad when sweeney comes out at the top of the show and says what happened then well that's the play and he wouldn't want us to give it away (laughs) and it's not just breaking the fourth wall it's breaking the fourth wall with a fucking threat (laughs) <laughs> right, right, you know? and, right. I, and so it just it, it, it pictured like some cartoon of a mushroom cloud going off inside a child's head <laughs> and that's eight-year-old john listening to the cast album and then going to the show and just being like what is so i am here i am here watching this but but you're going to stop talking to me for a moment but then you're going to come back and talk to me later what it, it just the whole idea of the many different ways you can tell a story yeah. And and again, I, I say this in the book, it's postmodernism before I had a chance to <laughs> understand what yeah. that was. It would be yeah. another 10 years before a lit professor explained the term to me. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, wow, you know, I'm not nine years old and saying, wow, he just affirmed the artifice in art. I'm just sitting there going, huh? What? <laughs> yeah, you're- uh, scary man, talk me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's such a great, I mean, that's the device itself working in its purest form, right? Yeah, that's- yeah, no, yeah, it really was. And it was, it was, it was this sense of, being put on a continuum with the ancient theaters where a guy would, the chorus would come out and, and speak to you and, um, uh, you know, characters would, would turn away and give you an aside or, or what have you. Uh, it was, it really, it really helped me fall in love with theater. And then there was other stuff that I got to see that was, I mean, I saw Evita with Patty Lapone. Wow. Um, I saw the Royal Shakespeare Company came to town and my dad took me to see Derek Jacobi play Cyrano de Bergerac, which wow. you can find um, PBS filmed it, not in front of an audience. They did just like a studio version of it. Um, but it's um, it's Derek Jacobi. It's Sinead Cusack. And as the Baker Montfleury, it's uh, Peter Postlethwaite. Whoa, is, uh, is that's there. cool. Yeah, so I apparently saw him on stage. I saw... Spalding Gray play the stage manager in our town. Wow. And I found the playbill recently and the rest of the cast is bonkers too. JK Simmons is in there. Francis Conroy is in it. Um, Eric Stoltz and Helen Hunt were George and Emily. What? Um, yeah. No, I love I this. Some... This is all stuff like, oh, I didn't realize I saw these people. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. Well, the big one, and this is in the book, the big one, the in terms of like seeing something in a very small venue and then years later, finding the uh, the playbill and saying, holy shit, I went to go see my Sunday school teacher <laughs> yeah. play Helena in a disco musical version of Midsummer Night's Dream, <laughs> which was my first Shakespeare. And I'm sure the purists would have had a problem with it, but I had a grand old time. Yeah. 20 years later, yeah. I happened to find the mimeographed, not Xerox, the mimeographed playbill 
And uh, John Goodman was Oberon and Nathan Lane was one of the rude mechanicals. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Not even bottom. He wasn't even bottom. He I was, was like one say, of the lesser mechanicals. He's like the yeah. lantern carrier, the moon yeah, playing yeah, the moon. Exactly. <laughs> uh, he, for all I know, he was the fucking wall. I don't know. Yeah. But he, uh, yeah, that was Nathan Lane, apparently. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, gosh. That's insane. That's great. All right. Well, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to revisit some of your early roles and maybe some of your more popular ones. We'll find out. Okay, uh, John, I have pulled up your IMDb page. Okay. And I'm going to go through uh, your credits. And let me see here. Let's make sure I have the right page up. It's up here. Um, I'm going to name some characters that you've played, and then oh, you're going to tell me what project <laughs> that was from. Speaking oh. of speaking oh, of risky. early okay. credits. Yeah, it's okay. okay. I'll give you hints if you can't figure it out. Okay. Um, so let's go back a little bit towards the beginning. Uh, one of the first ones I'm just randomly pulling up is Waiter. Well, that's probably Road Trip. Yep, that's correct. And that's an easy one because that's my first film role. Fantastic. And How did this come about? How did you book this It came about, um, it's almost a Nepo job to a certain extent. Um, I was studying at UCB and I was getting a nice little, I'd established myself there as like one of the go-to guys. I was, um, I was young and hungry and I was starting to go out for commercials and I was starting to book commercials because it was the late 90s dot-com boom, and they were constantly looking for nerds for their commercials. They're like, oh, the nerds are taking over. Let's put them in our ads. And I was still I was still wearing glasses. I weighed about 145 pounds, and I, I you know, you put me in like a short sleeve shirt and a tie, and I was the fucking stereotypical tech support guy. Um, but Scott Armstrong was also coming up at UCB at the time, the writer Scott Armstrong, and he had just written a film with Todd Phillips that was casting, and a bunch of people from the theater went out for different roles, and none of us booked anything in it, but then something went wrong with the guy, they, a local hire in Atlanta um, uh, showed up late to a table read or something, pissed somebody off and got fired, and Scott, to his credit, was like, I have a guy and I bet he'll fly himself down. I bet we could make him a local hire and I bet he'll fly himself down. And again, dot com boom. I was booking nationals. I was flush with cash. And I was like, yes, I will fly myself down. I'll find a way to, to bump myself up. So I went down and played waiter for one morning opposite uh, the late, great Fred Ward. And wow. um, it was a fun scene because it's got like one little kind of funny moment in it. It was great tape, but it was also cut proof. It was also, um, it's a plot point. It comes in mm -hmm. at like 28 minutes into the film. And if you don't have my scene, you don't understand that the boys on the road trip have maxed out their credit card <laughs> and, right, are right, now in, right. and are now in deep shit because the waiter comes over because this credit card doesn't work anymore. Um, and uh, so, yeah, unless they do a reshoot, they need my scene <laughs> for <laughs> You're like, the I for think the I got this in the back. I'm in the sense. final yeah. edit. Yeah, the I've been really cut. fortunate. I've been really fortunate. <laughs> I, I, I have like a lot of roles in my career where I come in and go, listen to me or the next hour won't make sense. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, been, <laughs> it's been a pretty lucky strike. But yes, that was that was that is the story behind Waiter. Uh, amazing. I love this. Um, OK, 
Let's scroll up a little bit in the timeline. How about Marcus? Do you remember the role Marcus? Marcus. Marcus. Oh, wait. Is Marcus charmed? It is. Man, you oh, got wow. a good memory. Marcus is the good... Marcus is the wimpy white lighter. Okay, so charmed. Right. So I did not watch the show. Um, and so the director called me the week beforehand and goes, So we have a lot of guests who don't watch the show. Do you know what a white lighter is? And I was like, I don't know what a white lighter is. And he explained, I don't know me, what a white lighter is. I have since forgotten myself. He explains like, this is what white lighters do. It's and they're sort of like, I guess they were sort of like sort of quasi guardian angels or whatever. But I was a wimpy one. And I was basically there as bait. Like the, the main girls, Holly Marie Combs, Rose McGowan and Alyssa Milano were there to, um, to track something down or to like use me as bait to summon some demon. And that turned okay. out that they were the demons. And and there's this amazing clip where um, the full moon comes out and they all turn into the CGI wolves and attack me. <laughs> um, and it was full on like me lying on my ground, fighting off nothing, <laughs> screaming my lungs out as I'm being mauled by and the effects do not look that good. It's real, like real WB effects back in the day. I don't think it was yeah. CW yet. I think it was, they were still WB and UPN were still separate. Yep. And, and we're talking was, 2004. So 2004. we still got those real tinny, tinny, cheap CGI effects that people yeah. haven't figured out how to texture or do any of that. No, there's well. no texture, no <laughs> texture at all. It looks like Minecraft. No like, way. Oh, this guy's, <laughs> this guy's absolutely been attacked by, by a couple creatures from Minecraft. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yet the, the nature of that show, like two months later, I am going to vote in the 2004 election. And a guy comes in because, Hey, what's Alyssa Milano like? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> wow. That show has a fan base. And the answer is she's lovely. She's actually yeah. very sweet. I had a nice time working with her. I've heard great things about yeah, her. Yeah, she's a good reputation. Uh, so for people who are in the who are curious, a white lighter, this is from the Charmed Wiki. Oh, thank a you. A white lighter is a guardian angel. Oh, I was right. You're right. Who protects and guides good witches and future white lighters to protect and nurture them for their intended destiny. Wow. Yeah. So okay. you nailed it. Nice. You nailed All it. Right. So I assume you were in L.A. by this time if you're if you're shooting yeah. Charmed. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I moved out here beginning of 02. And was that a pilot that brought you out? What, 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 what? No, it was my, my, my then girlfriend, now wife, was getting a lot of pressure from her, her people to move out here. And I had finally secured a manager, but they did not have a New York office. And I also, you know, I had just turned 30 in New York, which is the city I grew up in. And this was complicated because it is very hard to leave a city that is everybody else's destination. <laughs> you know what mm. I mean? Like you mm -hmm. feel a little bit like an ingrate or, or, or maybe not even that specific. Maybe you just feel kind of crazy, but people build their dreams around my native town. But for me, it's my hometown and I got to do, I feel like we're supposed to go someplace. We're supposed to get up and go someplace. And you know, what do you do if you're from New York and you want to go to the big city, you know? Yeah. What? There's um, no, st it's not a stepping stone city. It's no, it really isn't. You know, I mean, <laughs> the only one that's really more populous is what Tokyo, you know? So, so Jamie was like, I think I need to move and we could try the long distance thing. And I was like, or, you know, I could come with you. Um, 
<laughs> I'm mired in student loan debt and I don't know how to drive, ladies. <laughs> yeah. uh, and God love her. I mean, we were just talking about this. I mean, that was I was a chancy investment, man. I was a chancy fucking investment. I was a volatile stock on any front. <laughs> and she, God bless her, she saw something and she drove us across the country. And then, and there's no way we could have moved out here without her. And then she hit a dry spell and I instantly, like within two months, I booked a commercial campaign and a pilot and the pilot went to series. Whoa. And what show was really, that? It was called AUSA. It'll be yep. right below Charmed on on the uh, the page you're looking at. We aired eight Wally, episodes. Walter Wally Berman. That's me. That was me, the goofy paralegal, number six on the call sheet, number one in your hearts. Um, this is the one. Was this the one with Julia Duffy? No, was that Julia pilot Duffy didn't go to one? series. That okay. that one didn't go to series. Um, uh, what was that one called? I oh, just recently listened to that episode. That's why. I, I was, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, what was that? God, oh, we got Scott Foley. We got Eddie McClintock. We got Peter Jacobson. You must know Peter. You cross paths with Peter. Everyone's cross paths with Peter. I've never met Peter. Oh, really? Peter Peter mostly lives in uh, in New York. I think he's... I think he's in Utah right now with uh, with his lady. But um, he I had seen him in a couple of New York theater things in New York. So I was that was the one I was fanboying about because I was, you know, at this point, I'm already 30. I'm a guy. I'm not watching Felicity. Scott Foley seems mm-hmm. nice, but I don't mm-hmm. know who this guy is in any real sense. But yeah. PJ was a, you know, he was a Juilliard grad and I was just completely starstruck off this guy. And he was so there wasn't a whiff of condescension coming off of the guy. And there could have been, this was my first gig. It was my first multicam kind of, you know, I had a film and a handful of commercials and, um, and again, one day on a film, like I was wrapped before lunch. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I was really fucking green, but I was using the stuff I'd picked up in, in, uh, an acting class and in improv and I was doing well, but, Peter was really, really cool to me, and we've we've kept in touch over the years. I'm I'm a a massive fan because he could have been a total condescending prick, and he wasn't. <laughs> I wouldn't even awesome. have blamed him. You know, I would have been like, yeah, no, I'd patronize me too. Go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> You're like, you've earned it, sir. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna jump up a little bit because I've I've had my wrist slapped before in the past when I don't talk about that. I mean, first of all, this guy. You've never stopped working. This is insane. Like, I mean, you know, if you it have, looks like that. I know, I know it looks like that. <laughs> it's, I know. Even as I said it, I was like, I should bite my tongue. But like, it's, like break it down because you'll notice there's like, oh, wow, he never stopped working. There's two whole gigs in 2005. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. And, yeah. It, you know, there's, there's certain illusory qualities to this business <laughs> that it's make true. it seem like, like, um, well, obviously he has someone driving a Bentley for him, but I, I do fine. I'm not complaining, but I have in <laughs> fact, occasionally stopped working. <laughs> oh, well, I got to stop along the way up, up the way up the top of the list here and, and stop at this character, John Fowler. Do you remember? What project this was from? I do actually, yeah, because uh, because it um, it's John and Jamie Fowler are the couple because there was a certain show that will let you use your real first name. That would be Curb Your Enthusiasm. That must have been a big one. That was coming great. from the that improv world yeah. and getting I mean, to that do is, that show. That is, I mean, that is really the the feather in in your cap as as a someone who came up in improv to get to do that show. Ditto. Um, 
Reno 911 was mm-hmm. the other, you know, for a while there, those were like the two big improv gigs you could get. And, um, yeah, that was fun. Jamie and I, who had met in an improv class at UCB, went in together. We were called in together to do that uh, audition. And, you know, for Curb Your Enthusiasm, I think this is sort of the stuff of lore now, but you get a paragraph. They hand you a paragraph, and this is what's happening in the scene. This is what has to come out in the scene. Everything else is up to you. And the, you know, you're, you almost inevitably uh, – will always play straight man to Larry. Um, and there's, it's per, you're perfectly capable of getting straight man laughs, but you know, you are reacting to whatever he does. We have a, an adopted Asian baby and Larry asks if the child has shown any proclivity towards chopsticks <laughs> and we get accordingly offended. And that is the I episode. I remember this. That is that is that episode. And then so we find out he's a garbage person. But then later on. So here's a crazy coincidence. This is a weird little connection that's really strange. Later on, we see him and he is with a date and the date uses a wheelchair. And we go, oh, Larry's the kind of guy who dates somebody in a wheelchair who uses a wheelchair. So maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. And we patch things up and we reinvite him to our house. Um So the crazy thing is my last name on that show was Fowler. And then years later, the young man who played my son, who uses a wheelchair on Speechless, his last name was Fowler. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's a weird synchronicity. It's a weird synchronicity. Yeah, really wild. Anyway, um, yeah, Kirby Enthusiasm was a dream. And then years later, I was at a party. And it was one of those parties where, like, I'm just, like, I just barely got onto this invite list. I like, I, you know, you've had those things in LA where you're like, I am at the bottom of this, you know, like, oh, we have room. We've got all this food. Mm-hmm. Let's invite John. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not first in the, you know, I, I don't want to drop any more names than I have to, but I'm at this house, a really nice house in the hills. And who walks past me, but Larry David, I'm like, he's never going to remember me. But he walks past me and then he goes, Hey, and I turn around and he goes, Hey, it's nice to see you. And he shakes my hand. And I'm like, nice to see you too, man. Take, Thanks for saying hi. How are you? We part our ways. And I'm just like, awesome. And I look around and my friend Dan Swimer runs over and he goes, he just said hi to you. I saw that. You didn't say hi to him. He said hi to you. And I was like, I was literally just looking for a witness. I was literally (laughs) looking around the room to see if anybody else fucking saw that. And Dan... You fucking came through for me. Oh, brilliant. That's when you need a friend the most. <laughs> Absolutely, right? <laughs> All right. Well, I've got to ask about uh, why can't I find it in here? And then and your characters. Okay, here we go. Barry, of course. Barry. Uh, blank. Got nothing. I don't yeah, know I got which nothing. one you're talking about. Yeah, um, that little right. cult hit. I'm trying to get some eyeballs on that show. I would love to. <laughs> for for that to find an audience you know <laughs> yeah um if not just here then perhaps in in asia and um africa as well um yeah maybe an international audience can help boost a, you know boost a, boost a maybe one of those things like jerry lewis where it'll be appreciated in france so yeah. big bang theory um i had auditioned for leonard the part that johnny galecki got and i had auditioned twice i hadn't tested for it and I have a feeling that if you're listening to this podcast, you know the mm-hmm. difference between an audition, a callback, and a test. Yeah. I feel like I'm-, I'm We've covered it. We've the, covered it. Yeah, I've, I imagine you've covered it here. Um, so I didn't test for it. There was no money on the table, but I went in twice with a revised script, and it went well, 
but obviously it, it didn't go in my direction. And I, I, at that point was like, hey, Johnny Galecki's been at this forever and I actually like his work. So go with God. But, you know, Chuck Lorre, who was a co-creator of the show, it has a, he has sort of a loyalty thing. You know, he really will look out for the same people. There's a, an almost a repertoire company of, of Chuck Lorre people. And I guess I'm in there now. Um, That's awesome. So he, he brought me back in the middle of season two. They had a last minute cancellation and they desperately needed to f- uh, fill this role. So they brought in four people the night before the table read. Um, and it was, it was around this time of year. It was, it was like a really rainy December night. And, and they were like, can you get to Warner Brothers in two hours in this weather? And I was like, I, yeah, yeah, I'd rather not, but I can. Yes, I absolutely can. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was great because, you know, it said possible recurring, but come, they all say possible recurring. You know, I mean, I've, you know, you can go down in a hail of gunfire at the episode, at the end of the episode, it's going to say possible recurring because they want people to come out, you know, they want people to audition. Yeah. Um, but it worked out. I, I I think one of the great things about that is that I did not have time to get in my head about it. Um, and I just went in and played him as just the most confident nerd in the world. Great and, choice. You know, we, were, we were talking earlier about how you, you know, where your center of gravity is um, when you're playing a particular character and how you can differentiate him from yourself. Kripke led with his crotch, you know, Kripke was crotch first. That is how he entered a room. You know, he was just in, you know, knew his limitations mm-hmm. and knew what he was good at and did not give a fuck what anybody thought. And that was wonderfully liberating. And it's one of the things, cause every once in a while, someone will, will get up in my face online and say, you know, it was great that you uh, took a paycheck to make fun of people with a speech impediment. If it had been, if there was ever a moment where, Kripke and his speech impediment were a victim, I would have bristled at that. I would have had a problem with that. I really would have, but that was never the case. Yeah. He was a bad motherfucker. And the one time they let Sheldon make fun of him for the speech impediment, the audience turned on him. It was in front of a live audience. They went, Ooh, wow. And, and I immediately got the zinger that closed the scene. Um, so, you know, it, again, Kripke came out on top. Yeah, and that I think was the fun thing about that that role is that he was the absolute opposite of a loser. He just yeah, you know, just kicked ass. There's one episode where it, it looks like he's got he's done better, more comprehensive work than Sheldon. Um, it was a really it was a great gig. It was a really really fun time. And in a situation like that, it's just another impediment for that care an obstacle for that character to overcome. You know, and uh-huh. B, despite this thing that might people might make fun of me for. I'm still top. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it, it's very much like it's, you know, because you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned comics earlier. I always liken it to, uh, Lex Luthor's alopecia. Yep. Um, you know, there's a real, he has this one hindrance and, and that was the sort of thing that gave him a chip on his shoulder. And it's like, okay, I have a problem with my, my R's and my L's, but my understanding of string theory is going to be impeccable. Yeah. I'll overcome this. Yeah. Yeah. Try to stop me now. Exactly. That's great. Uh, Well, John, we're running out of time. Uh, Please let everyone know where they can find your book, where they can find your stuff. You may find my book, No Job for a Man, at your better bookstores. 
which is my uh, covert way of saying that if your bookstore isn't carrying it, it sucks. Um, <laughs> no, but you, I, um, you can find it uh, in the usual internet places. Um, I, if you, if you have the resources to use bookshop.org, I, 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 I do wish you would. They're helping the, the smaller mom and pop independent bookshops, which are near and right. dear to my heart. If you do not have that resources, there are, uh, there's a, a place that whose name escapes me, but they're named after a, a prominent river in South America. Hmm. You could try those guys as well. Um, but yeah, Pegasus books, put it out and, um, uh, people seem to really enjoy it, which is nice. It's great. I'm reading it now. Everyone go pick it up. I will put a link, uh, in the show notes so people can use the, the, the small bookstore link to order it or find it in their hometown. Lovely. Great. Awesome. Uh, you're going to join us in the green room and share a story that didn't make it into the book. Do you want to tease our listeners what that might be? Um, it is the story that explains why you can sort of find me on Wikifeet. Say no more. We'll see you in the green room. Okay, everybody, you can hear that story right now over at patreon.com slash slate your name. I want to remind everybody to uh, follow me on uh, Instagram, slate your name podcast. And if you want to follow me personally on Instagram, you can follow me at McMills, M-C-M-I-L-L, two Z's. Thanks so much. I want to thank John one last time for joining us. I want to thank John Forrest for editing and engineering this episode. And I want to thank Riley Bray for our beautiful piano music. If we don't see you over in the green room, we'll see you back here next week for a brand new episode. And remember, don't call us. We'll call you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.